um, <clears throat> this sermon today. Um, uh, it's uh, y'all. I hope you hear this. I hope you hear this tonight. <laughs> um, I have been I've been weeping all day, hoping that you hear this. I have no idea if what I'm going to say is is profound um, in rhetoric or the way that I communicate it, but but the reality of it is is perhaps the most profound thing that we can know, and, and I hope that you hear it well. Um, this semester, we're talking about the kingdom of God, and we're trying to consider what it looks like. I mean, we've been commanded to pray, God, your kingdom come. We want to know what is this kingdom, and Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, what is this thing that is so close to us that we could actually turn and repent and have something that is better than what we have now or where we've been or where we were going? We want to explore what this kingdom is that God is calling us to to, to, to ask to come into our lives, to break right into our reality this very moment. What is it? And there's been a whole number of things. And so before I get into tonight, just to to quickly kind of catch you up on some of the things that we have talked about. And this is a grave injustice to go over them this quick, but um, we've addressed the fact that, that what Jesus says this kingdom is, is he says it's so valuable that if you would see it clearly, it would be absurd for you not to sell everything to be a part of it. That if we would see it for what it is, nothing in our entire lives would be worth more than this kingdom. Nothing. And that if, we, if this kingdom came close to us, if we asked for this kingdom to break into our world, what we would actually see is forgiveness being the very way of life in that place. We have talked about the fact that the kingdom has a father, has a king who is abundant and generous. And the people that live and operate out of that kingdom do not operate in a, in a place of want. But they operate out of a place of abundance. That's what it would look like if the kingdom began to be present in our lives. We talked about the kingdom being a place where, where the king is welcoming for anybody who walks in. And this kingdom, of course, is, is founded upon, is structured around, is centered upon the very person and teachings of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what this kingdom really looks like, you can just take a long look at Jesus. This is what we're asking for. Tonight, <clears throat> Um, what we're talking about uh, is people who are lost. And the thesis, I suppose, for this sermon is that the kingdom of God is marked by a relentless pursuit of the lost. A relentless pursuit of the lost. If I were to pray that God's kingdom would come in my life right now, what I would see is lost things in and outside of me, in and outside of this room, and everywhere that his kingdom would touch that is lost, would be pursued relentlessly. That's the parable that we're looking at tonight. It deals with someone who is lost, and this relates to every single one of us. We were born into a world that is lost, and we were born lost, and if we aren't found, then that's how we die. And I wonder if that's why this chapter, Luke 15, is considered by some to be the most loved chapter of all. It's one of the most popular chapters in all of the Bible. And all it contains is three parables. That's all it is. There's no commentary other than three parables. It's a parable of a lost sheep. It's a parable of a lost coin. 
That's the prodigal and the older son. That's Luke 15. And all three of these relate. But I think it's so loved because this idea, this pursuit of the lost, is what we all need to hear in the very circumstances that we're in at an individual level in our lives. All I'm talking about today is the parable of the lost sheep. It was a Sabbath day. It was a day of rest. Jesus is with his disciples and a ruler of the Pharisees invited him and his disciples to come over to his place and have dinner with some of his, his Pharisaic friends. And this I'm sure was known because later on, and you guys will see, there's people around watching. I'm sure this ruler of the Pharisees wanted this guy who was kind of new on the scene to come into his house because it was a statement of, of maybe this, this ruler's, um, you know, his worth, his popularity. Now the Pharisees also, at this point, um, they didn't like Jesus so much because of some of the things he was doing and even some of the things he did at this dinner. But this ruler of the Pharisees invited him over, and if you know anything about the Pharisees, these were the righteous of the righteous. I mean, these were the people that you looked at and you felt ashamed because you weren't like them. And that's kind of how they liked it. For some of you in this room that may be like you, you like when people look at you and they feel bad about their life because it makes you feel better about yours. Well, those are the kind of people that invited Jesus over for dinner. It's a Sabbath day. This is a day of rest, right? And the first thing he does when he comes to this dinner, the first thing we know about is he takes a man who has a, 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 a horrible sickness and he heals him. And you and I in our culture today might think, wow, that's great. The Pharisees, who are keepers of the law, guardians of the law, so much so that it defined their righteousness and they could sit before God and demand entrance into his kingdom. They were furious. You don't, you don't heal people on the Sabbath. You don't work on the Sabbath. We don't even do laundry on the Sabbath. And here you are doing miracle work. So Jesus heals them on the Sabbath. And then he proceeds to tell them a parable about a wedding feast. That There's this guy, this master, who invited all of these guests to come to a wedding, a feast at this wedding. And none of the people invited read Pharisees, read Jews, Hebrews, the Hebrew nation. None of the people that were invited came. And so the master sends people out into the streets and grabs, tells his servants to grab people from the streets, from the bushes, from everywhere to come to this because he wants this wedding feast full. <laughs> At this point, because I'm sure the underlying things were laid on pretty thick, it says the tax collectors and the sinners gathered closer. <laughs> I'm sure at this point they probably felt a little safer because this Jesus just said what he said. And so then Jesus turns to all the tax collectors and the sinners that are sitting around him, no longer addressing the Pharisees. Of course, they still hear him. And Jesus begins to tell them the cost of discipleship. And he says, unless someone renounces all that they have, they cannot follow me. Heavy, heavy statement. And right after he finishes telling them about the cost of discipleship, then our chapter picks up in Luke 15. If you want to put that up, that'd be great. Before I read the first line, the last line, if we didn't have chapter and verse, uh, this would flow a little better. The last line of verse 14, after he talked about the cost of discipleship, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. And then check out the first line. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. He who has ears, let him hear. Look who draws closer to hear him. The tax collectors were hated, y'all. The sinners, maybe that's obvious. 
The tax collectors too. These were the, these were the people of the same nationality and race as the Pharisees. But they were not only supporting the Roman government by the collection of taxes, but the way they got paid was from skimming off the top. So they were supporting the oppressive government that the Jews were waiting to be destroyed and stealing from their brothers and sisters. They were loathed probably more than the classic sinner. And these two, the outcast groups, when Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear, drew closer. I pray that tonight we would hear as well. And the Pharisees and the scribes, and these two statements are juxtaposed on purpose, I think. They grumbled. They grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Shocking. This is shocking. You may have heard that a number of times. But when you see it still, you probably don't expect it. So he told them this parable. This is what he says. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. God, that's beautiful. I'm not going to preach on that, but I hope you hear something in that. Like I said earlier in the semester, I talked about how parables are not allegories and we can't read too much into every single detail, but there's something in this that the, that the, the shepherd lays the sheep on his shoulders no matter where the sheep wandered and was lost. That sheep is not made to trek back through all of that to the flock. But the shepherd just puts it on his shoulders and walks it back. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. This is a common story. This is not something uh, that Jesus is pulling out of the air and they're wondering what shepherds look like. This is rhetorical. Which one of you would not do this? Which one of you would not do this? You all know this. And it's true in their culture. Flocks of sheep, the shepherds who watched out over flocks of sheep were so responsible for the sheep, so responsible, that they would lose at least their job, if not more, if they did not come back with every sheep. And the ones who were lost, they had to come back with the fleece from that sheep if they couldn't come back with the sheep. If it died from a wolf, from, a, from falling off a cliff, the shepherd would be required to go down and get the fleece from that sheep and bring it back as proof that at least he found it. And maybe, maybe our minds aren't um, totally in love with the idea of shepherd because our ideas are of 85-year-old men who can barely speak, let alone walk or something. This is not the picture of a shepherd. Even if you look at shepherds today in Jerusalem, like, I, they're rugged men, perhaps some of the most like, daredevil men in the culture. One commentator says it's all in a day's work for a shepherd to risk their life for the sheep. These guys faced crappy weather, were outside all day, protected them on plateaus with cliffs and deserts, rocks everywhere, sparse eating, thick clouds and mist and just horrible weather, wolves and hyenas. And somehow I've just got to protect these sheep and every single sheep I am held accountable for. And if, I, if the sheep dies, I have to go get the fleece. So no matter whatever that sheep does, I got to go find it. It was not uncommon, I guess, for, for two or three shepherds to be over a flock and when they would come near the village and bring the sheep into the village, for there, for there to be one less shepherd than normal, and for people to ask why. And the other shepherds would say, well, he's out finding the sheep that was lost, and he won't come back until he's found it. If he doesn't come back, he never, find, he never found it. But he will come back whenever he finds it, and that's when he's going to come back. 
This is a common idea. And the Pharisees would have known this. This is all rhetorical. This is exactly what happens. 99 sheep, one gets lost. Let's go find, these sheep are safe. Let's go find the one that's lost until we find it, bring it back, and there is going to be much rejoicing. You know this, Pharisees. And now verse 7, and the parable ends. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now that's a little tricky. I think primarily there are two things in that line. If you want, if you want to leave that last line up, that would be great um, for a minute. Um, number one, there's more joy over this one that is found than a 99 who need no repentance. Okay, you guys, this is not about the shepherds loving one sheep more than another. That's not what's being talked about. A sheep was lost and it's found. Anytime that's happened in your life, you rejoice when something is found. The, the actual love of the shepherd, the, the competency of the shepherd, the fact that sheep was not so long gone or died is being celebrated. It has nothing to do with loving one more than the other. Any, a sheep was lost and it's found. It's as simple as that. That's, that's a reason to rejoice. And we ought to be excited about it when it comes to God in this metaphor because it demonstrates the power of God and his ability to actually reconcile and redeem. And we'll come back to that. Another thing that's happening, and I think this is more of what it's actually getting at, is this is very rhetorical. 99 people who need no repentance, it's written a couple of times in the pages of Scripture, and it's implied all over the place by our very actions, and it's continued to be testified today by our very lives. No one is righteous, not one. No one. So what is Jesus really saying? The Pharisees were listening in as Jesus was telling them. And this line number seven, this verse number seven, this one is for the Pharisees. This one is for the Pharisees. The Jews, I'm going to read this word for word. The Jews um, at the time uh, had a saying that went something like this. This is heavy. There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated by God. There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated by God, the enemy of God obliterated. Now that brings joy to heaven. But that's not what Jesus just said. What did he say? There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and is found. That's totally, totally different. Jesus is saying this to them. There's even this idea uh, in the rabbis at the time that a penitent sinner, a contrite sinner, somebody who, who wants to, to apologize and confess sin, and move back toward God. Well, that person would be accepted by God. But this idea, Jesus, of comparing God to a shepherd who actually seeks out the lost, now that's ridiculous. That's just ridiculous. Paul hadn't written yet that Jesus Christ died while we were still sinners. But, but he gets this idea from Christ because this is the truth. In the very midst of your sin, before you repent for a literally damned thing, Christ dies for you there. This, in the Jewish mind at that time, was unheard of. God is not the one that needs to do the pursuing. You're the one who has fallen. You're the one who has lost. Find your way back. Verse number seven is for the Pharisees. And we should hear a warning in this. If you don't see a need for repentance, if you don't have a need for a God who loves you, 
Where will you find love? If you don't have a need for a Savior who will save you, where will you be saved? How will you be saved? If you don't have a need for a Spirit which will empower you, where will you be empowered? This is not a parable for the Pharisees. They have no need of this. They have no need of Jesus. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. This is a parable for the lost. This is a parable which tells us that the kingdom of God and its king are about the relentless pursuit of those who are lost. This is a kingdom whose battle cries sound something like this. Outdo one another in love. These are the battle cries. Outdo one another in love. Outsubmit one another. Oh, lay down your lives for somebody else in order that they might understand the worth that they have in Christ Jesus. Get on your knees and wash somebody's feet. Sons and daughters of God, will you hurdle to become the least? If you are broken, if you are broken spiritually, physically, emotionally, economically, socially, if you're hungry, if you're sick, if you're naked, if you're poor, if you're lost, this kingdom is bent for you. That is who this kingdom is bent for. You are who this kingdom is bent for. You are who this king is bent for. They are in relentless pursuit of you. The creator of heaven and earth, the very one who knit you together and knows every fiber of your mind and of your being. He is before you right now, knocking, pleading, praying. He would have you. He would find you. This kingdom is marked by the relentless pursuit of the lost. If you have been found, if you have been found, you may have noticed something strange happen something you probably didn't expect. Those of you who have been found and who are, are, remain in the flock, <laughs> you who were once lost, because all of us are in one category or another, lost or we were once lost. You who were once lost, you may have noticed something happening in your life that you didn't expect. This whisper of God never leaving you alone. It sounds a little different now. When you were lost, it made some sense. Maybe. You heard God beckoning and calling and it made sense. But now why? Why does he still not leave you alone? Over here where the flock is secure, you notice that rest and peace look a little different than you might expect it. You expected contentment at being found. You expected peace at being found. You expected maybe stillness at being found. And it's not that these things don't happen. It's not that there isn't a contentment in the midst of all circumstances that isn't there. It is. It can be. That there can be peace in the midst of trial, for sure. That there's an, an abundance of stillness that is always available to us. This kind of rest in the midst of everything. But one of the things that's crazy is you might have noticed 
that after you have been found, there's actually more work, not less. That it sometimes seems harder, not easier. Now, of course, the work is different. It's, it's not a work that is geared toward getting worth. It's a work that flows out of having an abundance of it. It's a work that, that is shared, that the labor is actually shared. It, it, the burden of it is held up by the very God who made you. But still, why is, there, why is there more work? Why is it that after being found, it seems like things didn't get easier but harder? I have a metaphor for you, and I'm going to steal this from a guy named Gordon McDonald. He wrote a book uh, with a very, very sexy title called Ordering Your Private World. It's a boring title, um, but it's a great book. And he talks about your spiritual life being like a garden. And I think this is wildly helpful. This is wildly helpful. He says, when you look out over the landscape, the garden of your life, as God begins his great work in you, one of the things you notice and one of the things you're probably aware of is there are a few, maybe a couple, maybe three, four, gigantic boulders sitting right in the middle of what is intended to be Eden. And you know, God, if I give this to you, you're going to go to work on these gigantic things. I know that you are. I'm hesitant to give it to you because it's going to hurt. It's going to be weird. I don't want these things uprooted, but I know, God, that for this to be Eden, for this to be that beautiful, for this to be paradise, you're going to have to go to work on that. And so we let God begin. Have you been there? Do you know that moment? God, go to work on these things. And he begins to go to work. And I think somewhere in the back of my mind, I think to myself, it's going to be great when he's done with those boulders when he finishes those gigantic rocks, these huge, massive things, it's going to be like, I'm going to rest. And the most surprising things happen. The thing happens. As soon as those boulders are gone, I start noticing there's like 20 or 30 pretty good-sized rocks just like littered all over the place. But the boulders were so big that I never even noticed them. And now I'm like, oh, good night. He's going to have to go to work on all those too? I mean, the boulders I knew were there, but these I didn't even know, and they're massive, and I, he can't make this paradise until he does stuff with those. So God begins to work on those rocks. And there's more of them than there were boulders. And I think to myself, as soon as he finishes working on these, then I'm going to be able to rest. It's going to be great. And then God says, hold on, let me grab a rake. <laughs> and he comes out, and your yard is just littered with pebbles. And he starts turning soil. And when Gordon McDonald wrote, wrote, like wrote this out, it's just something broke in me, open. And I said, yes, this is what it's like being with God sometimes. It's this incessant, never-ending work that he's doing with me. See, God is in this process with us, this never-ending work. And many of you know this, but what does this have to do with a lost being found? So I know this happens on this side of being found. You are lost, now you're found. And one of the surprising things for most followers of Jesus, I think, is you don't expect that kind of work. You don't expect it to be harder. But it is. It's just a different kind of work. Why? And what does this have to do with the lost being found? You who are found, you blessed children, you once lost people who are now found in the very flock of God, he wants you to participate and is pursuing work with him. You, like them, are the most prized thing he's ever made. You are the most prized thing he's ever made. 
of everything God created, he said it's good. But then he made humans, and he said it's very good. Higher than angels. All of creation was made as a dwelling place for man and God to be together. The earth was made for you. You realize that? You are the most prized thing that God has ever made. We alone bear the image of God. We alone have his likeness. We alone share an inheritance with his son, Jesus. He considered us to be worth his son's life. What else in all of creation, and you can't go bigger than that, what else in all of creation has that going for it? Nothing. Nothing but you. Nothing but you. And we were not created to sit like trees, and just soak up life. That's not why we were created. We were created to operate like sons and daughters. We were created to reign on earth with Christ. If he is, if he is pursuing the lost, then those of us who are his children are invited to do the same. I was praying with my son a couple weeks back, um, I had gotten home late from something here. He had just gone to bed, so he was still awake. Um, and I walked in, and I had the opportunity to pray with him by myself, which I, we usually pray as kind of a family um, on his bed, but it was really cool just having some time with him. And um, I was really excited to pray with him uh, for my wife and for my daughter. I thought this would be really cool to have some time, just kind of man time. Uh, he's three, but he's totally a man. Um, it's just in case he ever listens to this in 50 years. Uh, we, uh, I asked him if he'd want to pray with me. I said, buddy, you want to pray with me for Mommy and Blythe? And he said, yeah, Daddy. And he just always gets so excited about it. I don't think he has any idea what we're really doing, but it's time together, and I think he likes that. And so we start praying, and um, at the end of the prayer, I tell him, thank you. And I said, buddy, you know, Daddy really cares a ton for, for Mommy and for Blythe, and I really love that you prayed with me for them. I really want to care for them. And he goes, Daddy, can I care for them too? And I just like, Y'all, I mean, I just started crying. Like, I, mean, I just started crying and crying. And like, in a good way, like, I just was like, oh, gosh, I don't want this burden to be on you. That's mine. That's a God-given burden that he gave to me. And I don't ever want you, as my son, to have to carry the weight of all of this. But to the degree that you want to participate in it with me, oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Well, how beautiful is that? Like, I want him to be cared for. He's a kid. He's three. I don't want him to have this huge burden right now, right? But that's not my goal for his whole life. I don't want him being a 45-year-old person who needs me to feed him still, who needs me to do everything for him. And I want to then care for him still. And I'm talking a little bit about an age difference here. But one of the things that I was keenly aware of is my hope is that there would be an abundance of care for him, so much so that what he wants to do is live like his dad. Now that requires that I be like Jesus, which is a huge burden <laughs> and something I hope for so much. To the degree that I'm not like Christ, I hope he forgets everything. But the degree to which I am, I do want him to care like I do. I want him to care like Christ does. I do. I never want him to forget how much he's cared for, but that's what I really want is for that to be abundant and him actually caring for others, not him just needing somebody else to care for him his whole entire life and never, that never doing actually anything in him and not having an effect in his very being and the actions of his life.
and even before he tries to care. Right now, as a three-year-old, I'm sitting there looking at him, and I go, God, if he is to be the man that you want him to be, there's work that needs to be done. It's, he's already a sinner. It shows up all over the place. But I'm not just talking about negative work, even just positive things. He just needs to grow. He needs to learn how to care. He needs to grow in this sort of thing. And in the very same way, this is why I think all of the eternal work that's done in the garden of our lives is so intimately related to the pursuit of the lost. That when you are found, I know it seems kind of crazy that God would go to work in you like crazy. And you might say to yourself, God, can't you leave me alone sometimes? I don't know if you've ever said that. I say that a lot. But there's something that I've missed in that. Because God doesn't want to leave me alone. He wants me to participate in what he's doing in the world. We are becoming like him. Fishers of men, Jesus says. We're being redeemed and trained to be about the work of the king. And if there's work to be done in you, in order that you might be more like Christ, you can count on God going about that work in you. And so, no matter what your relationship with Jesus, the kingdom work on either side, lost or found, is bent toward the lost. If you are lost, the king is pursuing you. If you are found, the king would have you help him pursue the lost. For some of you, for some of you, this is really hard. This is really frustrating. Because you remember when you were lost? You remember when you were broken? You remember when you were young? And maybe you remember being found. And how amazing that is. <laughs> how amazing it is when somebody finds you. The joy that happens, the attention, the excitement, the party, the fattened calf getting killed for supper. Or vegetarian style, whatever that is. You just realize that for vegetarians that probably sounds disgusting. It sounds delicious for me. Um, but you might remember that. And some of you, I think, because you remember that, you remember that center of attention, you remember the kingdom being bent toward you in that moment, that you might long for maybe a more tragic story in your life. Wish I had a tragic story. Maybe you wish for a, mir uh, like a miracle, uh, some type of experience that kind of breaks you in some way, that makes you unique and special and seem a little lost so that people might focus on you. It might feel like the kingdom of God might be bent toward you. Some moment that tips the scales toward you. Some of you, some of you want to be lost again in order that you're found. So bad that some of you hurt yourself. You've believed a lie if you think this way. Satan has convinced you of a terrible lie. That God somehow loves the lost more than the found. That he doesn't love you if you are found. That you are only loved in that place. God forbid that like my son would grow up and want to be lost in order that he might know how much I love him. That my son someday 
would want to hurt himself, run away, just to see if his dad actually loves him. Would I pursue him? Yeah. Every, I, I, I'd turn the whole world toward finding him if I could. But what I want for him is to know how much he's loved without ever doing that. I, w- I don't want him to be in a place where he just needs to be found because how lonely is that place? How broken is that place? How much does it suck wanting to know if it will ever even happen? I will find him. I don't want him to have to go through that. My hope is that he always knows my love. Jesus says, greater, it's greater to give than to receive. In his word, it's greater to give than to receive. Do you realize what God is offering you? Do you realize what God is offering you? You would hurt yourself in order to be loved But what God is offering is that you would be so loved that you would be a part of healing others. Think about that. God would have you be more than a conqueror in Christ and sometimes you want to stand before him and tell him that you're a slave. Do you realize what you're being offered? Friends, some of us have settled for poor, shallow, I would say lost, Definition of salvation. And I think this too is something Christ wants to save. And he wants to rescue. And he wants to redeem. He has more to offer than a rescued slave. He has more to offer than a found sheep. He would take sheep and he would make them lions. He would set you about on this earth to love, to subdue the earth, to be a part of making beauty happen here as sons and daughters of the very God Most High. These are not just found sheep. Our identity is not just in once lost, now found. It's in becoming sons and daughters of the great King. For now, while there is a single person lost on this planet, He would have you, like Jesus and in Jesus, be about seeking and saving them. That's what he would have you do if you are found. What is it that you are trying to do now that you're found? This is what he would have you do. And if you were created for such great things, I will contend that you will lack joy until you participate in that. And if you want to know why joy is missing from your life sometimes, it's probably because you're trying to be somebody that you're not, and it's so much less than what God is offering you. So much less. And I know that there are some of you in this room. You want nothing more than to be found. You know you're lost. You've pled with God. You've hoped. You don't believe that you're so righteous that you don't need help. You're holding your breath for the help you need. I know that that exists in this room. And I hate that you feel that way when I'm sitting up here telling you about a God who will pursue you. I hate that you feel lost. And all you want is to be found. And I believe that there will come a time, because I know God, there will come a time and it will seem, after the fact, looking back on it, it will seem like the fullness of time. It will seem like the perfect time. It will seem like the most anointed time and the stars were aligned. And of course, God would find me in that 
moment. I know that will come. But for some of you, it hasn't yet. And you want that so bad. And I'm sorry. Because we, those of us who follow Jesus, we should be relentless about finding you. Because this is God's plan. He wants to do this work through his church. And God forgive us if we do not take up such an awesome calling to go about finding you. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, um, I know that there are people in this room that are, they've wandered so far, they don't know how to get back, and they want to be found. God, I pray that you, that you would find them quick, and that you would carry them on your shoulders. And God, to the degree that, that you find it beautiful and that you would have us, those of us who are in your son Jesus, I ask that you would call us to participate in this and that you would allow us to help and that you would allow us to walk in the way that you have made us to be. God, forgive us for, for settling for something less For God, you have found so many of us and we just sit found and we never long for something more and wonder why we're bored. And we wonder why, God, that you have nothing more to offer us, but you do. Will you open our eyes, those of us that have been found in Jesus, God, will you open our eyes to the great calling that you have for us in this world? God, both inside of our lives as you pursue the lost things in us and work on them and outside of us as you pursue the lost around us. Will you cause us to be grateful that we have such a king and that you are bringing such a kingdom so close that the weak, the poor, the young, the children, the meek, the mild, the sinners and the tax collectors, that these are the ones in whom you display your greatness. God, please find us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.